six foot six above sea level. I grab the mic because I like to take you to another mental level. Low power frequency radio modulation. The big sound from underground. Hey, good afternoon. Welcome to Public Affair. Uh, my name is David Ahrens. I'm here with George Dreckman, and we're here for a pledge edition of A Public Affair. Uh, but we'll get to the pledge a little later. Um, this public affair has a bit of a different focus than most of the editions of this program. In addition to occurring during our fall pledge drive, we're not going to be focusing on a topic of immediate or current interest. Instead, we'll be talking about hope. We'll be talking with the author, or is it the editor, of a recent book that was collectively written by 193, if my count is right, Wisconsin writers in the early months of the COVID epidemic. Its focus is on the notion of hope as we began the quarantine in March 2020 and then were rocked by the murder of George Floyd in late May. Both of these events shattered some of the fundamental concepts of who we are as individuals and as a society, but also importantly for the concern of this book, of our notion of what the future might be. For the next hour, pledge requests aside, we'll be talking with B.J. Hollers, the author of Hope is the Thing, Wisconsinites on Perseverance in a Pandemic. We'll also welcome your thoughts or recollections of the quarantine period and the George Floyd BLM period two years ago about hope its ebb and flow over the past two years, but particularly during 2020. Did you ever feel ever feel hopeful during that period? Or were you empty of it? Or feel that you had to construct a mindset of hope? B.J. Hollers is the author of several books, including Hope is the Thing, including Weird in Flyover Country, and the road south, and the, oh, excuse me, weird in flyover country, and then a separate book, Road South, Personal Stories of the Freedom Riders. He's the recipient of many awards, both national and regional, in recognition of his work. However, like 99% of writers, B.J. has a day job as an associate professor of English at UW-Eau Claire. Well, BJ, welcome to A Public Affair. Hey, David, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks for waiting through that long uh, intro, <laughs> uh, but uh, sort of have to set the stage here. Uh, first, I wanted to talk a bit about the title, Hope is the Thing. Where is that from? Sure. Uh, well, the title kind of struck me in one of those, you know, mid-March 2020 days when I think a lot of us were kind of floundering and looking looking for hope wherever we might be able to find it. Um, and for me, it was in an Emily Dickinson poem, a pretty famous one. It's called Hope is the Thing with Feathers. Hmm. Um, one of those poems you might have read in high school or a college level English class. And and upon reading it, you, you know, you realize the thing with feathers is, of course, a bird. And it's a very simple thing. And we often see a lot of them in our daily lives. Um, but this idea that hope could come from such humble means, that it's everywhere if we look for it, uh, really inspired me to try to look a little closer for it, too. Yeah. Uh, do you have the poem handy? Where you could I do. do. Read it? Thank I'd, you. I'd be glad to. And this is, of course, Hope is the Thing with Feathers, uh, number 314 uh, by Emily Dickinson. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetest in the gale is heard, and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asks the crumb of me. Huh. So that bird um, was bashed by a storm uh, for many of us. Um, as you and I and everybody who's listening to this sh show. Um, but when you, did you first read the poem and say, 
I want to know what others are feeling or how they are approaching this crisis, what's in their hearts, their thoughts about the future. How did this, what I'm trying to get is how this book really came to be. Sure. That's a great question. And, you know, I think it, it goes back to, again, those those days that are sort of hard to think about when we were so disoriented, didn't even know what to call it, didn't quite know how to respond to it. Um, but, you know, March of 2020. Um, so I, alongside so many others, was feeling a little ungrounded, a little unmoored. Um, I, I imagine I just came across this poem. And then as a result of that, I, I reached out to a whole lot of writers' friends. I run an organization called the Chippewa Valley Writers Guild here in Western Wisconsin. I put a call out, you know, in 500 words or fewer, um, bounce off of Emily Dickinson's title and just replace um, the latter half of the thing with feathers with whatever it's given you hope. Hope is blank, you know. And so um, how could we fill that blank in 500 words or less? And I mean, the the response was unbelievable. I know I got hundreds of submissions. Um, I posted about everyone I could huh. on the Chippewa Valley Writers Guild website. And then as a result of that, I realized, you know, I think what we have here is actually a book. And so I worked with the Wisconsin Historical Society Press to make sure we had a a more diverse geographically, racially, um, in terms of all kinds of identities, uh, approach to where we are finding hope collectively as Wisconsinites. And, and I try to put it in book form and try to elevate and amplify uh, some of these really powerful places where hope was hiding. Yeah. And here it is now. Uh, as you say, it's it's out um, from Wisconsin Historical Society Press. Um, it's in most Dane County libraries, I checked. But uh, I got uh, a copy at uh, Room of One's Own, and it's probably in other bookstores around. Um, what, what's been the response from uh, people? What else? After the book came out, was this sort of a continuing conversation in some way? Yeah, I think it has been, you know, I mean, so much related to our feelings and just the response uh, to the pandemic uh, continues to evolve, as we know. And so has the reception to this book. I think. There are two moments that really stand out. One was a, a Milwaukee Journal Sentinel review um, from Jim Higgins, who wrote, um, if more if more than 19 months of pandemic and political turmoil have made you leery about cozying up to fuzzy words about hope, be not troubled. Most of the contributions here are grounded, even tough minded. And that was by design. You know, I think there are true limits to hope. Hope without action is something that fleets, fleets away from us, just like that bird sometimes, you mm -hmm. know. And so one response was kind of, helping readers understand that hope isn't always touchy-feely. Sometimes hope is kind of the target we're aiming toward, but that doesn't get us there until we find our way to that place. Um, so that was one response. And the other response came to me um, by way of the press. Uh, they shared with me that they gave copies of this book to many of the major actors and movers and shakers in the statewide health department, the people making these daily decisions to try to save our lives. And I was completely unaware of that. But this idea of all these kind of scientific minded people, people who are on the front lines of this, might have had this book on their bedside table, might have taken comfort in, in one of the selections. I mean, that that was humbling beyond anything I've ever written myself, just being huh. able to help produce something that might be able to empower them to do their work more fully. Oh, yeah. It's it seemed to me that the <clears throat> I mean, there there are two events here. I mean, one was the quarantine um, but and that's sort of the thing that many people would reference, you know, in the title is a pandemic. But it's for I don't know what percentage of the writers, but many of the writers um, referenced or focused on George Floyd uh, in their essays or their poems. Um, my sense is that those that focused on that had a more difficult time manifesting hope. Um, some uh, viewed it as a turning point that made them more hopeful. If they focused just on the murder, it was a sense of of loss and of uh, of you know a lack of hope. Others who focused on the BLM and seemed to be more hopeful. What was your What was your take on that? Yeah. Uh, oh, I think that's that's spot on. Um, certainly my my personal hope here with this collection was to kind of create the most diverse landscape we can in a, as many fashions as possible. And so uh, there are indeed uh, several writers of, of different backgrounds, and orientations um, and races. Um, and, and several of these folks really did decide to kind of try to think a lot about the limits of hope and how difficult it is to 
find some semblance of hope in, in the aftermath of some of these uh, horrific events uh, of racial injustice. And so I think of uh, a poem called Hope is a Bruise, written by our, our poet laureate, in fact, uh, Wisconsin poet laureate Dasha Kelly Hamilton. And, and that one really, really struck home uh, about her daughter um, yeah. going to these social justice parades and, and uh, marches and, um, you know, being fired upon by rubber bullets and these sorts of things, you know. And so hope is the bruise is the result of, of putting oneself's body on the line. Uh, for equality. And so that that's one one by Dante McFadden um, kind of compares hope to the chair that's thrown through the window in the movie Do the Right yeah, Thing. Right. You know, and I love that one. It was such a unique take. I never would have considered, you know, how that movie, how that scene in that that vital movie could speak to the modern moment. Um, and so that was the best part of this whole book is it sounds selfish, but being able to see firsthand what other people were thinking and feeling and experiencing and trying to grow from those uh, shared experiences and experiences that were perhaps not shared. Yeah, yeah, I I, I um, copied a line from the McFadden poem. Uh, I thought it was pretty striking, and she wrote uh, at the end, the tragic irony of the yellow brick road that leads to hope is that there are berries bodied underneath the pavement. Mm. Um, sort of a pretty bleak, but I think um, prescient and uh, a good evidence of what many people were feeling um, at that moment. Uh, just to remind folks, this is a, a public affair. Um, my name is David Ahrens. I'm with George Dreckman for our Pledge Drive, and we're interviewing B.J. Hollers, who uh, compiled a book, edited a book called Hope is the Thing, Wisconsinites on Perseverance in a Pandemic. Um, if you have um, thoughts, memories, reflections about that period of fall, summer uh, 2020 and your experience of hope or uh, the loss of it, um, let's uh, hear from you and share, share that. Um, one thing that occurred to me um, reading it and just kind of meditating on the notion of hope is is whether do you think hope is a is it a biological imperative i mean that we're as animals or as or as humans we are born with it i mean you don't think of hopeless children for the most right. part i mean children are sort of perennially hopeful regardless of whatever the territory that's ahead of them. I mean, there may be some fear, but they always have that kernel of hope. And I wondered whether it's just something that we're born with and that we sort of need to take the next step and the next step and the next step, even though we may not know where we're going. Yeah, I mean, certainly that's been my personal experience. Um, thinking of my own children, one of whom was was very young. I mean, she was born in November of that year, and so she didn't really see any human beings that she could remember uh, until you know maybe six to eight months ago. We kind of started coming out a little more ourselves. Um, I imagine or I wonder, you know, what the experience might be uh, for other children who maybe don't have the basic necessities met. You know, are they also hopeful? What does hope look like for them? But I, I think what I've learned in this whole process is that. Hope is an evolving term um, and it changes and it ebbs and flows and where we find it changes, I think, based off of kind of the, the moment in our in our history, whether that's American history, world history. You know, you mentioned earlier, you know, the murder of George Floyd. And of course, we had a, a cacophony of crises at this particular moment in times, including environmental crises and the ongoing one there as well. And so I find the more I talk about hope, the more I, I have people pushing back and saying, but where is it when there's so much trouble, when our earth is on fire, when people are being murdered in the streets, when political turmoil is everywhere, uh, when we can't put food on the tables, where is it? And it's it's hard for me, for my privileged position to say, oh, it's there, it's there, it's in the bird in the tree. You know, I think there's there's a more complicated <laughs> yeah. answer, too. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's take a break for a minute. <clears throat> Excuse me. And uh, we're going to uh, hear from George. Um, about the pledges and uh, what you need to do to keep uh, this station alive. Yes, we are uh, in the midst of our uh, fall pledge drive, and uh, we would love to hear from you at 608-256-1111. Uh, uh, 
2001. Or you can donate online at wortfm.org. Uh, click on the Donate button. And there's also a Donate button on the WORT app if you're listening on the app. Uh, Patty and Amy are standing by to take your calls at 608-256-2001. And uh, we're also, we also have... Uh, Ian's Pizza to thank for their food donation today. And we'd love to be thanking you on the air like we are going to thank Eric uh, for uh, his pledge. Uh, He likes the original Wilson Brothers, Tropical Rhythms, and Democracy Now! And we want to thank Andrea for donating online as well. Her favorite programs are Back to the Country, Madison Bookbeat, and all the news and public affairs. Affairs programming, and she says greetings to Bill and Bobby and Jane and Jonathan. So we would like to thank you on the air, too. And we also have uh, some thank you gifts, some pledge premiums that are available to you. Uh, If you choose to donate, uh, we have the WORT Wart uh, retro airline bag at the $100 level. That's uh, uh, a popular item. It's going fast. Mm -hmm. So pledge now. And we have a new one for this fall pledge drive, the WORT Funky Sticker Hoodie. Mm. It's got that oval-shaped bumper sticker mm-hmm. on the sweatshirt. comes in uh, three different colors. It does. Red, black, and purple. Now, the bumper sticker isn't stuck on the sweatshirt. No way. <laughs> no, we... <laughs> We get that nicely silk screened on there. And you can choose any size from small to 5X. Uh, that's at the $150 level. But if you sign up as an evergreen donor where we take $10 a month, uh, you pledge $10 a month from your bank account, it's only $120. So you can, you can save by becoming an evergreen donor, and that's very important for us because... Um, that's money we can count on, and if we have more evergreen donors, we'll have fewer pledge drives. Mm. And, so. and it's less of a hit to your bank account. It's just yeah. a, you never saw the $10. You never it never got in your hand. You have to give it away. It's just, it just flows. Yeah, it's almost like cryptocurrency. <laughs> <laughs> Except it doesn't use as much energy. Um, so give us a call, 608 608- 256-2001, or online, wortfm.org, or uh, on the Donate button on the WORT app. Uh, We want to hear from you. Please support this type of programming that you really don't get anywhere else here in the city of Madison. Right. Thank you. Thank you, George. So we'll be uh, listening for your uh, pledges. Uh, We have a goal here of of getting uh, four pledges uh, over this Next hour, we're about halfway through, and um, I guess we're hoping uh, that we're going to get those four, including especially some new people, um, some new people or some uh, folks who want to increase their uh, evergreen uh, uh, contribution. You know, I uh, look, I had to notice in the book that. Um, uh, one of the contributors is a Madisonian and uh, someone who uh, I think frequently appears appears or is listened to on Wart, um, uh, Fabu Carter. Uh, she was the, may have been the first Madison Poet Laureate, but was a Poet Laureate for the city here for four years. And uh, I thought it was extraordinary that her Entry says that she has the poem that you read, B.J., by Emily Dickinson, and it's framed in her home as a daily reminder of the existence of hope in the United States, especially during perilous times. So I thought that I just thought that was amazing that There are a lot of moments of kind of serendipity in this book. And what's what's cool about it, at least for me, was, I mean, some of these contributors are are former students of mine, current students, the eighth grader down the road, an 80 year old friend or a perfect stranger, you know, and while I was familiar with Fabu's work, I'd never had a chance to interact directly. I, I was previously on the Wisconsin Poet Laureate Commission, so I'm very familiar with the work there. But this was a chance for me to 
to try to reach out and connect. And of course, connecting it was very different in those days and still is, you know, where it's often an email or a Zoom or a Google Meets. Um, but but this did in some ways widen the world, as I think so many people have kind of talked about how we're all kind of, quote unquote, alone together. And I think um, that was a relationship I was able to forge. And and yeah, you're right. The fact that it is framed, I think, needlepoint on, on her on her wall is kind of proof that she was the perfect person uh, to share her two cents on this one. Yeah, she, that she's really given it some thought. <laughs> and, exactly. Uh, as she passes by and um, she describes in some detail the different conditions of other African-American women over the past hundreds of years who then continue to write, who continue to find creative means of expressing themselves um, and then ends with the note that hope is a miracle inside poets. Mm. You know, and, and Fabu's piece is a great example of proof of how much can be revealed in 500 words. You know, that was part of the deal here. You have 500 words, you know, and so that's a lot of compression. Uh, but somehow every every writer in here from the poets who might be a little better at that sort of thing to uh, the more prosaic prose writers among us, we're all able to kind of distill larger ideas into kind of tangible moments. And I think that was, that's been, I think people who read the book, a lot of them mentioned they read it kind of like a daily devotional. They read one a day, maybe it speaks to them, maybe not. Either way, it kind of stays with them throughout the day in a short form, um, and then they go to the next one. And I love that idea of reading it uh, kind of day by day, something that can stay with you uh, over 100 days, you know. Yeah, it really, um, it kind of loses its punch. I mean, uh, because <laughs> I had to, you know, I got the book and this show is coming up, so I read it over a period of uh, 10 days or so. And so reading 20 at a time or 30 at a time, <laughs> uh, it just, I had to put it down and just sort of let it, let it rest and the thought rest for a while and then pick it up and 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 read a few more. Um, exactly. So you don't want to overindulge. You don't overindulge. And it, it I mean, not that it gets uh, repetitious, it just loses its, it loses its punch, you know. Yeah, uh, exactly. As opposed to just reading one or two and giving some time to, to let it settle. Um, have you, you know, one of the things that uh, it occurred to me of, you know, Jesse Jackson's great line that sort of became in the media something of a of a punchline, um, but initially was, I think, quite powerful after the killing of Martin Luther King and so on, um, where he said, "You know, keep hope alive," mm. and. Um, I had wished that, you know, that had sort of come back um, and recalled during the 2020 crisis. Um, did you uh, reflect on that at all about this notion of keeping it alive and what that entails? It, it, I mean, you sort of, um, I mean, hope is, um, you sort of, you, you said that activism and and being engaged is kind of the muscle of hope hmm. uh, that you have to exercise that thing I th that was my take on from from jesse yeah. jackson's yeah know, i like i like that a lot and you know this idea of kind of you know holding it tight working for it, finding it again, keeping it a lid. It reminds me of a, a moment uh, you mentioned earlier, a, a previous book of mine called The Road South, Personal Stories of the Freedom Riders. And so I was writing that book in uh, Montgomery, Alabama one day. I was, it was the 50th anniversary of a major event at the First Baptist Church where, you know, we had to call in uh, National Guard to protect the African-American people inside, including some freedom riders. So I was there 50 years later in the parking lot late at night with the original freedom riders who were in the church that day. Hmm. And I remember listening to them talking and laughing and, and singing some old freedom songs like like the old days. And they turned to me and they said, all right. And they kind of brought me into the fold and said, now it's your turn. Uh, you got you to gotta keep keep this torch going. And I, I mean, like middle class white guy from the north isn't exactly the ideal purveyor of keeping any torches alive, you know. But just what I took that to mean was simply 
I can convey this message through through the writing to other people who can perhaps bear it alongside uh, so many others. And so that when I think of kind of coming back to hope, keeping it alive, I think of that moment, you know, and how words words can have a true impact. Words can kind of fuel that fire, um, encourage, inspire over generations uh, from person to person, people who've done that work, people who are doing that work. And I hope that this book can kind of keep those flames alive for others. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Yeah. Words is words are a tool for this, you know, Mm -hmm. and um, uh, I mean, they're talking about it, writing about it. I mean, this is part of what I'm sort of uh, riffing, thinking about uh, of keeping the um, muscle of hope uh, vibrant or it just kind of withers away. Yeah. Yeah, there's a one one quote I'll throw out related to this, um, which was kind of percolating in the back of my head as I was trying to envision this project. And it's from the writer Maxine Hong Kingston. Um, And she was speaking directly in response to the pandemic. And she said, you know, in a time of destruction, create something. And I think that really pushed me on to say, absolutely. You know, I mean, if creating is one of those ways to use that muscle, it makes you feel, again, grounded, um, like you're part of the conversation, like you're perhaps helping others. And so it's my hope that not only did this project allow individual writers across the state to to have a platform to share, but then to share those words with a much larger audience of people who were hoping to either, you know, write their own hope or or hear from people who were hopeful uh, as they tried to find their own. So there's a lot of winners here um, when everyone gets a, a place at the table, I suppose. Yeah. Uh, hope is a... Is... Is it a different thing than optimism? Ah, oh, that's a great question. Uh, in my mind, it is, you know, um, and I guess I've often been accused of being a bit Pollyanna-ish uh, in my optimism or in my hopefulness. Um, but I feel like optimism is kind of a state and hope hope can be a verb. I think someone mentioned in the book that hope is a verb. Hope is what you do. You don't necessarily do optimism. You can be optimistic. I prefer to be as best I can. But, but hope is something you can enact uh, daily and hourly and by the minute if we, if we so choose. So hope is what inspires me. Um, optimism is, I guess, what I hope to, hope to be if I, if I do my work well enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I'm reminded of um, this uh, quote saying from um, an Italian uh, uh, revolutionary uh, Gramsci and he um, he's, he said in one of his notebooks um, and he was he was in these are in writings from the years that he was in prison in mm. fascist Italy um, and it was um, pessimism of the intellect and optimism of the soul <laughs> and uh, you know here he is faced in, you know, basically dying in Italy, basically dying in prison in a fascist Italy over years. Um, and things didn't look very good. Right. <laughs> uh, the uh, whole workers' movement in Italy had been smashed. Mussolini was in power. So just looking at it objectively, he would say, hmm, could be pessimistic. <laughs> Right. Well, that's a great quote. And I I think when I think about that, I mean, I often think of hope as the fuel, like hope is what gets me fired up to try to do the action to persuade my intellect that maybe it's not so bad, or at least I've done my part to try to make it better. So without the hope part in the soul, as you quoted, Mm -hmm. what what inspires or motivates the change, I guess? Yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, take a break again. You know, know, where else are you going to hear conversations like this? where you have hosts who can bring up uh, imprisoned <laughs> Italian <laughs> revolutionaries in, in fascist Italy. You know, that's what WORT is. That's what we talk about. And uh, so give us a call. Talk to Patty or Amy at 608-256-2001. Click the Donate button on your web page if you're listening online, and we know many of you are. Or click the Donate button on that WORT app. And that WORT app is something you really ought to download. Uh, It's really nice if you could do that. Uh, And that way you can take WORT with you wherever you go, which is something that I'm very happy to do uh, when I travel. Um, 
And uh, we need uh, your contributions. We need your support. Uh, we are trying to replace equipment. Uh, we have our operating expenses. It's like $92 an hour to keep the station on the line, on the air, uh, which is pretty reasonable, really, because we don't operate at high overhead, but we've got to keep the equipment maintained. So Yeah, and we pay for some programming, not this yeah. one. This is a volunteer-run right. program. Uh, of course, George and I are volunteers. Our engineer is a volunteer, and our phone answers and most everybody else. But uh, we do pay for some of the favorite programs here, BBC, yeah. Democracy Now!, um, uh, We'll get to uh, letters and politics in a little while. So we pay fees for that, and uh, it's not uh, free. Uh, there's a toll for it, and without your dollars, they go off the air. That's right. So give us a call, 608-256-2001. We'd love to hear from you. And I just wanted to uh, toss something in here that, that ties into the pandemic. And for me, hope was a book. And relating to also to George Floyd, my eldest is a teacher at a charter school in Minneapolis and teaches many kids from that neighborhood. And the school is, was located in a strip mall right near the spot where George Floyd was murdered. Mm. And you probably saw pictures of this strip mall being attacked uh, by uh, the protesters. You know, it was a, it was a target of that rage. And uh, the school was damaged. And my eldest, they provided, they, they teach language arts, literature, writing. They teach all of that. And they supplied the school library. And Mars was just terrified about going into the school and seeing the damage that was done. I know I've given her lots of books for that, given them lots of books for that library, but none of the books were touched. The damage was to some of the physical infrastructure, but they left the books alone. So that, for me, you know, was, was a sign uh, as we talk about hope. That was something that, you know, gave some hope that the people knew that while they were angry and there was a target for their rage, that they mm -hmm. recognize the value of the of the book, of the printed word, and the power that it has. Yeah, that's a great story. Um, <clears throat> uh, we don't just hope that you'll call. <laughs> you <make a> pledge. <laughs> yeah. In fact, we're counting yeah. on it because uh, without. Uh, pledges, and if we don't, uh, we need to get uh, four pledges, which is sort of a pretty low threshold. Yeah, we do have one. We, have we got one. A new one, right. another one, yes. Um, and this one came, hmm? Madison, this one came from Tucson, Arizona, hmm. <laughs> listening online. Wow. Uh, we want to thank Taina for her contribution uh, to the program. And uh, so that shows the reach of the station mm -hmm. as well. And uh, so we would love to have you uh, make your donation online or call 608 256 2000. We're global. We we're, are. We're global, man. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Um, okay, so we, you know, ding, ding. We usually oh. hit a bell or something and see where it is. <laughs> oh, there it is. <laughs> okay. That's the pledge. We, <laughs> it's heard around the world. <laughs> it's probably, you know, bouncing out into uh, the universe here. So, um, yeah, we're, we're not just talking about pledges here. We're talking about um, a very timely book. I mean, it's sort of uh, uh, timely and, or a timeless book. Because it's about hope, and it's called Hope is the Thing, Wisconsinites on Perseverance in a Pandemic. And it's edited by uh, B.J. Hollers, who is from Eau Claire or lives in Eau Claire, is a professor at UW-Eau Claire, and edited this um, really kind of fascinating compilation of um, both reflections and uh, I think some of them, I think what's interesting about the book is that there's a very immediate tone to it, isn't it, B.J.? It's not like somebody looking back two years. Most of these 
stories here are, yeah, I've just walked the dog for the fifth time. <laughs> you're, you're, you're absolutely right. And first of all, thank you, George, for sharing that story. I mean, I think that very much speaks to the kind of submissions we were getting. You know, everyone had a story. Everyone has a story. And so just empowering people uh, to tell them is, is half the battle. A lot of the people in this book, I mean, yes, we've got state poet laureates, but we've also got an eighth grader, you know, people who've never published, rarely written, who felt compelled to, to share something now. Um, there's one I think about a lot uh, by a guy named Peter Wittes uh, called Hope is a Clear Window. And he just talks about uh, an elderly gentleman who talks about his wife in a, an elder care facility and how he couldn't see her through her window. The window was just too dirty. There was a screen. He couldn't even see his wife of, you know, I think half a century or something close. And having the maintenance guy come in and remove that screen, uh, clean the window so he could at least see her so she could see him. I mean, such a modest and small gesture, but it meant so much. Um, and to your point too, um, David, yeah, this, this is kind of a snapshot in real time. You know, it's been out for just about a year now, but when these pieces were written, it was summer 2020. And so a lot of these reflect exactly what was happening summer 2020. It's a time capsule. And I think because of that, it's kind of hard to read sometimes. That's not, the, that's not the way to sell books. But, you know, as I as I open it and reflect on it now, I mean, there are some that I'm just not ready for yet. Like, I remember it, it hits too close, you know. And so hopefully as time goes on, I'll return to these pieces and, and feel a little more comfortable and a little more willing to to go back to that moment uh, and, and find the hope that did reside there even in some of those darker moments. Yeah. Yeah. Let me, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. If you're listening and want to uh, join the conversation, um, our lines are open and uh, give us a call at 256-2001, extension 9, if you want to continue this or participate in this conversation, because I think people have uh, a whole variety of memories and feelings and uh, so on. I think some people, uh, some folks in the book, and I, I've heard this from uh, friends who have kids at home, um, as you do, BJ, that I remember getting a call from a friend who has, you know, he worked, his wife works full-time, he works more than full-time. The kids have, you know, ballet and gymnastics and so on and so forth. He has three kids and um maybe this was towards the beginning of the pandemic, like after the first month or so, and him saying that he was sort of glad about it, glad about the quarantine, at least. I mean, in terms of, wasn't glad that people were dying, of course, right. not, not right. some ogre, uh, but but just at a most personal level, it was just that, it was just, okay, shut it yeah. down. Stop yeah. the running around. We're just, you know, going to play games and and see who each other are on more than a half hour before bedtime, but just right. day in and day out, we're going to see how we live together, uh, maybe as a couple. Um, uh, but for his family, he thought it was, you know, a great, really, a really worthwhile tonic in terms of uh, stopping the commotion. You know, that's that's maybe the part of this whole conversation that really interests me the most from where I'm sitting today, because I felt that, too. You know, in some respects, it felt like we were all kind of trapped in our houses in like a blizzard. There was something in the outside world that was preventing us from getting to the places we'd become so familiar with, you know, and the speed of the world, the constant rushing from one activity to the next to work to back from work. I mean, there was something about that pause that dramatically impacted you know how i how i live today and how i'm trying to be a little more present in my daily interactions especially uh with my family you know um i mean i remember my brother uh trying to get back to indiana where my parents were living at the time to spend so he could be part of that bubble so he wasn't kind of trapped half the country away and he ended up staying at our old math teacher's lake house because it was an empty place and so in what other mm. universe is you know a 28 year old kid going to be in his high school math teacher's lake house 40 minutes from his parents, you know, it, under no other circumstances would this have ever occurred. But these were the kind of strange moments that I think allowed us to get close in, in entirely new ways. I always think about this moment where the first day school was canceled and I was home with the kids and I was so gung ho. I think so many of us were so gung ho. We're going to do this homeschooling thing right here. We go. We watched a PBS special on Wisconsin. Check one. We we're going to do some math by mid afternoon. It was all just like any Disney plus show we could find. I mean, it was just 
I tanked within hours. I, I've always had great respect for teachers, especially <laughs> elementary, middle school, and high school teachers. But goodness, like it's just through the roof at this time. I couldn't last two hours with my own children trying to teach them a thing or two. But thankfully, the pandemic taught us all more than a thing or two. And I think at the core of that is how to how to live and, and, and survive this world with hopefully decency and dignity and to try to project that to, to others, to everyone, you know, whether we agree or disagree uh, politically or in any number of things, how do we find a way to fashion a world where we can all thrive together? Yeah. And there are, you know, I think the there are a few essays um, are pretty striking of people who are alone, um, yeah. who have no one to bounce anything off of and they're, you know, sort of the walls get closer and closer. My sister, you know, lives alone and, you know, she's used to that, but it still involves a lot of interaction and people outside. And this was a time where, you know, it was just for many people, just them and the TV. Right. Right. And I, I, there's a piece in here by my by my friend Jim Alf, who's in a, a senior care facility himself, and uh, his is called Hope is Purple. Um, and that, that's an interesting title. So I'm reading on. It, it goes in these really dire circumstances related to his health, and you aren't quite sure what's going on. And then you realize he's constipated. So it's not COVID. <laughs> it's just constipation. And so the hope being purple is the prune juice, you know, but he really thought this might be the end, you know, and he's kind of alone by himself and concerned. And I love that that opens the book. They're kind of, they're just in alphabetical order, but the last yeah. name of an A kind of yeah. got him there. But I think it sets the tone of, look, this is a hard time, still a hard time, but, but we can find joy. We can laugh. We can, we can roll our eyes and, and have some relief literally and figuratively when we, when we need it. And so um, I love uh, moments like that too, which kind of widen beyond the perils uh, to show the humanity too. Yeah. George really reflected on the purple prune juice. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Yeah. Definitely. Hey, why don't you give us a call, folks? 608 256 2001. We'd love to get your pledge here at WORT, or we'd love to have you contribute to our discussion of hope. Uh, so 608-256-2001. Uh, you can donate online at wortfm.org or click the Donate button on the WORT app. And now once more, I'd like to... Uh, I'm looking forward to getting off the air because we've got some pizza from Ian's here. So uh, we want to thank them for donating uh, to help us through the pledge drive, the fuel for the pledge drive. Yeah. Uh, also at the uh, beginning is... I thought a really um, uh, touching essay uh, by Jerry Apps, um, who's a Wisconsin writer, has written untold number of, well, I think it says 35 books, uh, most about uh, Wisconsin and, and his growing up here and memories or memories of memories of other people uh, and discussing how um, he had... Uh, polio as a kid and and what that meant to him as a kid with a limp uh, in Wild Rose, Wisconsin, um, you know, sort of the war period or post-war period. Um, and his, many, many of them have a, the final words are really the, you know, sort of the punch here where he says, um, I'm living walking proof that something valuable can come from something difficult. Even knowing that overcoming hopelessness with hope is not easy. I'm still working on it. Mm. Um, and I, I, uh, I think that's the, you know, the challenge here is, you know, getting up and, walking up that hill one more time. Uh, and here he was as uh, a kid, uh, you know, with polio and uh, a paralyzed leg, uh, trying to work it through. Um, yeah, I, uh, I, my day job for years <clears throat> was in public health. Mm. And... Um, Spent a good deal of time with uh, infectious disease 
folks and virologists and so on. And, um, and there were real periods when, given what was going on uh, with the different strains producing and ever unknown, and I don't know if you recall, but the uh, initial sense was uh, uh, there may not be a vaccine for two or three years. The ballpark up to that point had been five years for a vaccine, and we didn't know how the strains were mutating, and you know, hundreds and hundreds of people were dying in New York, and so anyway, uh, I really didn't feel very hopeful <laughs> for right. a while. I was just too scared to be hopeful about what it was that the world might be in um, a year or two. You know, what happens when this hits Africa, when there where there are really no healthcare system at all. Uh, to speak of, and um, uh, you know, it's it's tremendous toll on elderly people like myself, um, and how vulnerable elders are, or people with so-called pre-existing conditions. That is, they were human beings, um, and it was really trying to scrounge up that feeling of not feeling, um, you know, pushing out the despair and, and filling up with hope. And um, uh, w- you have one essay from, uh, actually it is a, a public health person from uh, Eau Claire, Luang Huyen, yeah. I probably messed up the pronunciation, which is it's a hard rebo- reboot of your social contract and, you know, you have to sort of defrag yourself and of, of, of your own barriers in your own, you know, despair or whatever, and find a way to recontact people. And that seemed to be the essential thing for many of these essays is, is really coming into contact in terms with, uh, with other people, and right. and that you know something that's that's meaningful. Your own essay in the beginning, where you know you're wheeling your baby in a baby carriage, and you do the dance of who goes right and left, mm-hmm. and then you say to your baby, "That's a person." <laughs> you know? yeah yeah and that's where that we were at that time you know she'd seen so few of us um we saw a deer right before and she'd seen plenty of deer but the humans deer, the humans outside the family and, yeah that but that, that's a person yeah <laughs> uh we're gonna sort of wrap it up now um and uh i want to really thank uh bj hollers for taking the time to have this conversation with us bj is the author of hope is the thing Wisconsinites on Perseverance in a Pandemic. Um, this is published by University of Wisconsin Historical or Wisconsin Historical Society uh, Press, um, and it's available, uh, I think, all over. Whether it's your local bookstore or is it Amazon? I don't know. We, sometimes we, all those places. Okay, all those places wherever you look. <laughs> I hope you'll find it and uh, and read it as uh, not from cover to cover but really as you mentioned bj as a almost as a reference book yeah thanks again and we're gonna i'm gonna turn it over to george again yeah we have to uh we have to ask for uh your support for programming uh like a public affair and the upcoming letters and politics uh we haven't we have uh someone to thank by the way there it is. I want to thank Anonymous, Anonymous, that uh, one of my favorite donors uh, for contributing to the show. We'd like to be able to thank you by by uh, calling us at uh, 608-256-2001, where you can talk to uh, uh, Patty and uh, Amy uh, for their uh, uh, who are there to take your pledge. We would love to have you do that. Um, and uh, give us a call. Uh, we've got about uh, f- 
three minutes left here on our program, uh, and uh, we would love to have you show your support for a public affair and for all of Madison uh, WRT's uh, public affairs programs. Um, because this is where you hear the perspectives that you don't hear other places. We've all gone for trips and turned on the radio, and it's welcome to the vast wasteland of right-wing talk and religious programming. Uh, and this is the spot where there is an alternative view being expressed. Uh, and you get to that information. Uh, you get that information here at WORT, especially on a public affair. So 608-256-2001, uh, give us a call. We would love to have you, uh, we'd love to hear from you. And donate online, wortfm.org. Mm-hmm. This is a unique trip here uh, at WORT. Not only is every hour different, but listening through all 200-something hours over a period of of a week. If you listen to the next week, it's going to be different. Then the name of the program may be uh, the same, but it'll be different programming. Uh, this isn't a rut. Uh, this is uh, always something new. So, uh, so make your contribution. Get a skull baseball cap with mm-hmm. ward on it, or a yeah. hoodie, or. Uh, uh, that great uh, tote bag, not a bag, uh, subscription to Progressive scri- Magazine. Yeah, forty-five dollars. You can get a subscription to Progressive. There's a lot there, but the most important thing is being able to uh, turn on your radio or uh, turn on your computer or whatever it is, and uh, and find a unique niche here at Ward. Oh, that music! I, I think yeah. that means that we, we we're going to have baby. to get we have to make way for uh, letters and politics. So we get to stick around That's though. Right. We're, we're going to be talking to you again yeah. for the next hour. So please call six zero eight two five six two thousand one because we're going to be bugging you for another hour. So yeah. you know, the more you call, the less we talk. Yeah, we're going to get some Ian's pizza. 